Welcome, welcome to the other side of midnight. I'm waiting for the music to settle down. Thank you, thank you. Welcome to the other side of midnight. This is a really important show. I'm so delighted to have these distinguished guests that we have with us tonight. Richard, our dear Richard, is suffering from a migraine and I don't know what it is. I know at least five geniuses that all have the same, including Graham Hancock, who suffer from migraines. And, you know, you do your best, but when that happens, you can't even do that. So Keith Morgan and myself are standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, as well as Barbara Honiger, our guest, will also be assisting I'm really delighted that we're going to go forward with this show. It's a a groundbreaking show. So this is uh, the 2nd of January, and it is the harbinger of wonderful things to come, revelations and closures and new beginnings as we crack open the dark corners and bring light to them and open the way for new revelations. It's about time, definitely. Before we get into the topic of the show, I just want to speak to all of this wonderful audience, listeners that we have. Uh, This is Kinthea, and I have really appreciated being associated with The Other Side of Midnight for the past five years. And during this time, I have grown a lot. I've learned a lot from all of you, from the listeners. And in this uh, time of winter where we go into hibernation, if you will, or meditation, I've been listening to my spirit and it has called me to focus more on my art and my other radio show, The Other Side of the News, as well as my nonprofit, Global Peace Media. But I want you all to know, I am not leaving, Richard. We have been in partnership for more than 40 years. Imagine that. (laughs) It's been a long journey. And I will still continue to be associated with the show in various ways. It's just that now we're really blessed. We've got a real webmaster who's going to step in, redesign the site. And while that's happening... Our dear Keith Morgan, who has been our sound engineer, is going to wear a double hat of helping with the website. So be patient. Uh, (laughs) Be patient. We're all, you know, going through changes and evolutions and uh, giving our best. We feel that the information that we bring to you will enhance your life and give you new insights, new ways of seeing things. And this is why all of us are really volunteering our time on this show to keep it going. It's an important show. And those of you who have never been members, I ask you to consider being a member to help the show go. The show is going to grow. My stepping away is not in any way going to stop that from happening. Richard's making amazing breakthroughs with his new a Muamua project, and uh, as I said, I will be associated, but just wearing different hats. So, with that, I'd like to introduce our esteemed panel tonight. I am so delighted we have three returning fabulous guests and a new guest. So, starting off, these are the 
members of the 911 Inquiry Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry. And first off, we have attorney Mick Harrison, who is the co founder of Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry, a member of the board, and the executive director. He directs and conducts the organization's litigation. Mr. Harrison is experienced public interest plaintiff's attorney with a national practice focused on whistleblower protection, government oversight, and accountability and environmental protection. We also have with us Richard Gage tonight of the AIA Architect, sits on the Lawyers Committee for the 911 Inquiry Board of Directors and also serves as a technical advisor. Richard comes to the Lawyers Committee after 15 years as a founder and CEO of Architects and Engineers for 911 Truth. In addition to being the Lawyer Committee's first on-board technical expert, with his wealth of architectural experience and in-depth knowledge of the forensic facts regarding the World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7, he will be partnering on a new cutting-edge 911 documentary film series entitled 911 from Crime Scene to Courtroom and joining other board members for radio interviews and public appearances while also speaking and doing weekly podcast interviews as part of his new independent 911 mission at richardgage911.org. And be sure and look for that podcast. It's, uh, you're going to be amazed. He's, he's got a wealth of information. So next up, we have our dear Barbara Honiger, who has been on the show more times than I could possibly count. Barbara has been a member of the board for five years and is now board co-chair. Ms. Honiger has served in a number of high-level positions in the federal government, including White House policy analyst, special assistant to the president for domestic policy, director of the Attorney General's Law Review at the Department of Justice, and for more than a decade was the senior military affairs journalist at the Naval Postgraduate School. Barbara is also the author of October Surprise, which was subsequently validated by formally classified documents that led to a congressional reinvestigation of the Iran side of the Iran-Contra scandal, funded at a level of the 911 Commission and has been an investigative researcher, author, public speaker, and major activist on the events of September 11th. And joining us tonight, we have a new guest. I'm really delighted to introduce her, Christina Borgensen, an Emmy Award-winning investigative journalist and documentary film director and producer has joined the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry Board of the Directors and also serves as Director of Investigations and Board Co-Chair. Christina comes to the Lawyers Committee after many years working for major television networks, including CBS, CNN, and PBS. 
and having directed and produced the acclaimed independent documentary film, TWA Flight 800. Her awards include an Emmy for investigative reporting, two Emmy nominations, the Edward R. Murrow Award, two Independent Publisher Book Awards, and the Progressive Radio Network Award for Outstanding Programming and Investigative Reporting. Christina was recently honored by the Americans Who Tell the Truth Project as one of the select group of citizens who courageously address issues of social, environmental, and economic fairness. Christina also produces and hosts the online program Whistleblower Newsroom. So welcome, wonderful guests. I'm just thrilled to have you on the show tonight. I know this is going to be a revelation for many of our audience, and I can't wait to get started. So Barbara, I'm going to pass the baton to you for the time being. Okay. Can you hear me? Absolutely. Okay. I unmuted myself. Well, um, I I know. I don't just believe that tonight is a very historic, historic program. Um, I would like to say that when I hear all the bios of my wonderful colleagues on the board of the, the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, I'm reminded what an amazing group of people um, we have. I mean, you can lose sight of that uh, on the day-to-day work on the board um, because we are just a wonderful team who get things done. Uh, but then when we hear the... Uh, when we hear the bios read, I'm, I'm, you know, really honored to be with these, these amazing, amazing people, as I have been for five years. Okay, so what I'd like to do is uh, begin by inviting uh, our executive director, who also oversees the, um, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiries litigation uh, action, so all of our litigation work. And that is Attorney Mick Harrison. I'd like to turn the mic over to him. And what he's going to do is to let the world know about a, an amazing uh, new victory by uh, Mick Harrison himself, representing a plaintiff in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit uh, that has been going on for five to six years now. And we just had a victory in the court with Judge Emmett Sullivan. And Mick is going to let you know uh, about that victory. That's We're going to start with that. So, Mick, take it away. Thank you, Barbara. And thank you, Kintia. Good to be back with you. Uh, we have had a significant legal decision that took us six years to obtain, which we'll be talking about uh, in the first part of the program tonight. And let me, before I get into the details, echo Barbara's appreciation for her fellow board members. I feel the same way. And um, I'm, you know, humbled and honored to be working with these folks myself. The legal victory we had is a Freedom of Information Act case brought against two federal agencies, uh, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, which we call NIST, N-I-S-T, and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. The essence of the case was that the plaintiff, uh, David Cole, who is a longtime researcher on 9-11 
truth issues and one of the foremost FOIA uh, investigators, Freedom of Information Act investigators on 9-11 issues has been for, I don't know, now 15 years probably. Um, David is the plaintiff and I represented him in this lawsuit with the support of our organization, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. So uh, we're representing David without charge to David. Um, the, this, the essence of the suit was David asked a fairly, what we thought was a fairly simple question of these two agencies. He asked under the federal FOIA law to obtain copies of federal agency records that represented the, the background and raw data used for a key study done on the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings on 9-11 in New York. Most folks know that the two towers collapsed because we had the unfortunate opportunity to watch that on television live when it happened back 20 years ago. Uh, a lot of folks may not recall or may not even have learned yet that a third World Trade Center building collapsed, Building 7, on 9-11. It was not hit by an airplane. The two towers were hit by an airplane. So the, the FEMA agency had done a study called the Building Performance Study. Uh, abbreviated BPS, I may use that acronym, and that study was purportedly a scientific engineering architectural explanation of the performance of the Trade Center buildings and some surrounding buildings on 9-11, why they acted as they did under the stresses of the day, and why these three buildings in particular, buildings 1, 2, and 7, the two towers in building 7, completely collapsed. So David, of course, like many of us, have reviewed these studies and they ignore all the evidence that's come forward over the years of the use of explosives at the Trade Center buildings. And for those who haven't caught up on that issue, uh, the Lawyers Committee has submitted a petition to a federal grand jury in New York uh, through the U.S. Attorney. We're actually litigating about that. We'll tell you about that later in the program. But there is uh, dispositive evidence, which uh, our colleague Richard Gage has been explaining to the public for, I don't know how many years, 15 years. So uh, that evidence is, is dispositive, basically, that explosives were used. But the, the FEMA study didn't really acknowledge that at all. It gave a sort of a general description the building speculated that fires and the plane damage in the two towers caused those collapses. On building seven, the best they could do was say that uh, the best, uh, the most probable explanation they could come up with, hypothesis really, had a low probability of occurrence. And in the case of all the buildings, they said that further study was needed. <clears throat> so David wanted, for the benefit of the public, to obtain uh, what went into the study. And so he asked for things like videos, uh, interviews, laboratory tests, photographs, field notes, <clears throat> audio, um, various memoranda. He basically wanted to know, you know, what was the basis for these general and apparently incorrect conclusions from the FEMA agency about this most important event in our history, which led to the war on terror and so many tragic losses. Um, 
So what happened was, and you'll have to listen closely to this because you probably won't believe I said it right the first time because it's not really going to be comprehensible initially. The first thing that the agency said to David Cole in response to his Freedom of Information Act request was, we don't have any responsive records. So you have to let that sink in for a minute. This is the federal agency that did this detailed hundreds of pages study trying to reassure the public of why these buildings collapsed on 9-11 and they could not find a single record, a single page of records to give to David under his federal law request. Uh, that would be the data they used to reach their conclusions. So we knew, of course, that had to be wrong. And um, David is a persistent soul, as am I and my colleagues. So eventually, FEMA, upon further inquiry, uh, said, well, the reason we don't have anything to give you at all in response to your request is that we gave all of our records for that we used for the building performance study to another federal agency, which was NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, so that NIST could do its follow-on study. And we didn't keep any copies or originals, paper or electronic, of our own records for ourselves. So you have to let that one sink in for a little bit. When is the last time you knew a federal agency or any corporation sharing records with another entity in support of a, a study or some other project to not keep copies of the records for themselves to have accomplished what FEMA told us they did, which was give everything to NIST? They literally would have, have, have to have given their computer hard drives to NIST, their backup email systems to NIST, as well as their primary all their paper copies, um, all of their electronic copies, floppy disks, CDs. I mean, it was another sort of uh, inexplicable and non-credible explanation. So David got correspondence from the agencies over a period of four or five years before he sued them, trying to get to the bottom of this. At one point, they advised him that NIST had located a bunch of the records that FEMA had given them regarding the World Trade Center building study, the BPS, and uh, those would be returned to FEMA and then they would release records to Mr. Cole. As the law allowed, David was extremely patient with them on this and um, they even uh, advised that, uh, you know, they would be releasing records soon, but they never did. And after four years, essentially, of delay, um, David decided to sue them. I decided to represent him in doing that. We sued in federal court in Washington, D.C. And a few months after our lawsuit was filed, uh, the agencies woke up and delivered to Mr. Cole about 4,000 pages of documents that they could have given him four years ago. And these documents did, in fact, give some of the sort of the raw data and background information related to the building performance study. But I asked David, my client at that point, to review those records carefully and see whether anything significant appeared to be missing. He did that diligently. And unfortunately, he reported back to me that pretty much all the key documents were missing. 
there were entire CDs, uh, compact discs full of information that we knew existed that were not given to us. There were drawings of the buildings that would have been key to an engineering analysis of the collapse that were not provided, uh, key photographs, and some key video evidence uh, to give you just some examples. So um, I then advised the Department of Justice, who was representing these two agencies in this lawsuit, that uh, we had not been given all the responsive records and we could prove it because we had independent proof that these key records that were not given to us existed. In most cases, those missing records had been referenced by FEMA or NIST themselves in public, publicly available documents. So another mystery, how could they have been referenced by the agencies and the agencies not find them to produce to us? So we had a hearing in Washington, D.C. before Judge Sullivan, uh, who's a senior judge at the district court there. And uh, after that hearing, we decided to file a motion for discovery on behalf of Mr. Cole, which I did. For those who don't know the legal process, uh, discovery is how you obtain information from your opponent that they otherwise would not be willing to give you. You do that by de deposing people under oath live in front of a court reporter or by issuing document requests that have the same power as a subpoena basically or interrogatories, which are written questions which have to be answered under oath. And um, we thought the judge was inclined to grant our discovery motion. The government filed a, a brief opposing it and explained that the uh, it was premature in their view to grant discovery, notwithstanding the irregularities that we could document, because they could explain everything if the judge just let them provide affidavits, which are in the federal system called declarations from their key officials. And then the judge could determine whether discovery was really necessary. The judge decided to give the agencies that opportunity before ruling on our motion or before granting our motion for discovery. So that motion got postponed. We ended up doing uh, discovery, pardon me, uh, summary judgment motions. And again, for those who aren't lawyers, um, this is a, a way to have cases decided without a trial because uh, in an appropriate case, there are no facts genuinely in dispute. So you don't need to have the cross-examination of witnesses and so forth that a trial would provide. So we did our motions for summary judgment. We supported our motion with David's affidavit or declaration with the documents we had in hand. And the government gave their declarations attempting to explain the mysteries I've identified for you in the case. And um, the short version is that their declarations really added nothing new to answer the mysteries. They didn't say anything about the missing documents other really than they couldn't find them. They claimed to have searched diligently for them, but on a close examination, the only place FEMA searched was the office that had received the records back from NIST. Uh, FEMA apparently never searched its own original records at all. So um, the wheels of justice grind slowly, as they say, and it took a couple of years, maybe three or four, I think I've lost count at this point, the, the case got assigned to a magistrate judge by Judge Sullivan to decide the summary judgment motions. 
the magistrate judge issued a year or so ago a decision in our favor, which was not a final decision, just a recommended, but recommended that we be granted discovery and recommended denying the government's motion for summary judgment, which was, you know, a tentative victory. It's not a victory till the trial judge signs off on it and judges are free to reject a magistrate's report. <clears throat> so the victory that we announced, um, I don't know, a week ago or so, it was a decision that came down from Judge Sullivan, the district court judge, approving in about 99% the magistrate judge's recommendation. <clears throat> so that the breakthrough that we're talking about here is uh, in two ways. And I'll try to get this in before our break. The, um, the judge agreed that we should be granted discovery. So the, for the first time, to my knowledge, in a 9-11 case, from a citizen's perspective, uh, a citizen plaintiff is going to be allowed to do discovery against federal agencies and acquire records and force them to explain what happened to key missing records related to the collapse of the World Trade Center buildings. And we'll see where all that takes us. And happy to answer questions about that. But so, so Mitch, first, yes, Mitch, go ahead. Yeah, before you go on. I'm just curious, you know, this first judge that you came to who said, you know, put it off. Did you feel that in some way that this judge is really uh, in collusion with these other parties? Not at all. Not at all. Okay. No. And the reason I say that is, one, I had a hearing in front front of this judge. He asked very insightful questions and um, made some astute observations during the hearing which suggested that he got it, he got what was going on. And then he also is the judge that ended up making this final ruling in our favor. Ah, okay, all right. Well, it can, yeah. it's just amazing the, the patience that you've all had to keep going after this and not to be discouraged and stop. And I mean, I imagine that Every day that goes by is more expense as well, you know, raising the money to keep the, the, the wheels of justice going. Yeah, thank you for that. I think all of our board members can attest to the truth of what you're saying, as can Mr. I Cole. Think have, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and yeah, I'm curious, is. so how are you funding this research? Uh, very carefully. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need, I mean, we need to fund it. Um We've been surviving sort of uh, year to year, month to month, and have been fortunate. We've donated a lot of our own time, and um, we've been um, fortunate to get some, uh, a lot of small donations and an occasional larger donation. But we're probably functioning at about 25% of what we should be doing in our budget to actually achieve our mission. And now that we've got this breakthrough and have this opportunity to do discovery, we actually need to raise some money specific to this case so we can pay for the depositions. If you've ever been in a lawsuit, uh, it costs maybe uh, one to $3,000 a day for deposition costs, for court reporters' fees and everything. Um, so we're going to need to raise some additional money for this. We also need to raise money to keep the lights on, as we say, and, and – uh, Hopefully well, you get it. Go ahead. I think the universe has your back and certainly <laughs> history will remember all of you. And the more you're out there now that you're closer and closer to some some really big breakthrough. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm, I'm sure that 
resources are going to flood into your work. Yeah, they definitely are. And like to help us, Cynthia, all you got to do is go to the Lawyers Committee website, which is LC4, that's F O R, LC4, 911.org, LC4, 911.org, and right at the top on the right, you will see how to help us with your much needed donations with this incredible breakthrough we just had. Thank you for pointing that out, Barbara. And we will mention it several times during the show. You are on the other side of midnight. We have an amazing panel tonight from the Lawyers Committee of 911 Inquiry. The show is entitled Major Legal Breakthrough in the 911 Conspiracy. And we will return after the break. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. Take a look at what is going on with us now. You have vax or no vax. You have mandates or no mandates. You have uh, pharmacies who are not allowed to make uh, pres- prescriptions on substances that they don't, you know, that, that big pharma doesn't want them to have anymore. Somebody's in control of something. There's going to be a time, follow the money, where you're going to say, hey, Something really inappropriate's gone on here. We're being controlled. I mean, it's it's one thing to to have mandates and all these, and another thing to shut people up who say, "I would like to talk about this a little bit." No, you don't. You're not going to talk. And and so we have, uh, you know, people like uh, Dr. Mercola being shut down. That is not us. That's not how we operate. People ought to at least be allowed to have an opinion and state the opinion and and have uh, say, uh, I'd like you to know that a good immune system is going to help you. So here are the things for a good immune system. But I'm sorry, you can't buy them anymore because we're not allowed to. So something's going on. So that, my friend, is going to be exposed. That's another thing that you're seeing for a while and it won't last forever. So it's there now. But believe me, it ain't going to stay because the light's going to be turned on. Just like the, the abuse of the, uh, that I've just talked about, of both women and kids with priests and all, it's here in an ugly way, and eventually it's going to be seen. Crying says there'll be revelations, there may be even a movie about it. It's going to be the same thing that happened when we found out with tobacco, that they were, of course, addicting our children, and they had a cartoon, and they knew that it caused cancer. and. 
You know what happened with that. We shut that, basically shut that down, and now we don't smoke anymore. Hi there, this is Lee Carroll. I want to tell you about the other side of the news. In these days where we're not really hearing much good news or perhaps even what's really happening, that's where the other side of the news is different. And in that, you're going to hear not only controversy, but you're going to hear great things. There are going to be joyful things, too. I just got done with one of the broadcasts, and I encourage you to take a listen with myself and Monica. But the other side of the news, that's what we need more of in these times. Welcome back to The Other Side of Midnight. We were just playing an ad from The Other Side of the News, which is my other show. And we deal with topics that are mostly censored on the social media platforms. Actually, this is topic tonight is one of those which could be very censored because there are dark forces behind that do not want the truth to come out. So, Barbara, I know you had a key question you were going to put to Mick. Please come forward. Okay. Yeah. Well, I would like everyone to know, seeing as you just mentioned your program, Cynthia, that's separate, um, but kind of is the child, if you will, of the other side of midnight, and that is the other side of the news. And I know that Mick knows this, but I'm not sure that Christina or Richard Gage know it yet, but we have been invited and have accepted uh, to be on your show, The Other Side of the News, uh, on the night night of January 21st, um, which is a historic day. And I'm going to turn the mic over to Mick again um, to tell us why that is going to be a historic day. And we will be, your show will be the first one probably, that we will be on after this historic day. So, Mick, let us know why it's going to be so historic. Okay, thank you. Um, so we're, we're sort of on the verge of potentially uh, significant legal breakthroughs in another case. So we may have two developing simultaneously after waiting years to get them, but it, it does take persistence. So just to get closure on the first one, the, um, the FOIA case, we've been granted discovery. After I get off the call tonight, I'll probably be working on my discovery plan, which the judge is requiring us to submit by four days from now. And so this discovery is going to be happening, folks, in short order. So we could really use your support for that uh, freedom of information case because we're going to be in doing those depositions shortly and the other written discovery. But the, the, the case Barbara's talking about has to do with another side of this controversy related. Uh, we did submit a petition with all the demolition evidence that Richard has been talking about, Richard Gage, for so many years, and so many other scientists, engineers, and architects have developed. And uh, the U.S. attorney refused to give our petition to the federal grand jury from all indications. And we ended up suing in federal district court in New York to force the U.S. attorney to do his job. There is a federal statute that mandates that a U.S. attorney uh, give to a federal special grand jury any citizen report of a federal crime, in case you didn't know that. And in our case, 
uh, our 50-page detailed petition with all the scientific evidence attached was not delivered to the grand jury, contrary to that statute. There is a law that requires us to go through the U.S. attorney to communicate with the grand jury, but the U.S. attorney has an obligation to pass it on. So the district court decided that uh, none of our plaintiffs, and this was a lawyer's committee lawsuit along with architects and engineers um, for 9-11 Truth, as well as several family members uh, who had lost uh, loved ones on 9-11 and some ground zero responders, firefighters and so forth. And the court decided that none of us had standing, legal standing, legal capacity or stature to sue in that case, which we believe to be a legal error. And the strange, the strangest thing about it, the standing has been a roadblock in a lot of public interest cases over the years. And in my view, as a public interest lawyer, courts have been too stingy in recognizing citizen standing to bring public interest cases. Um, standing basically just means you're affected in some adverse way enough to give you an interest to litigate the case you know, assertively so that you don't get sham litigation going on. It's a legitimate principle to a point, but the courts have been, I think, uh, too uh, resistant to recognizing citizen standing. In our case, in New York is another example of that, uh, how shall I say, overly conservative practice. Seems suspicious to me. You could say that. Uh, now, <laughs> the uh, <clears throat> the interesting thing about it, without getting too much into the legal details, for those who aren't lawyers, <clears throat> we had two types of claims in this case. One was the uh, the claim that the U.S. attorney had violated a federal statute imposing a mandatory duty on the U.S. attorney to give our petition to the grand jury. We'll call those the mandamus claims. But we also had a First Amendment right to petition the government for redress claim. And the standing analysis is very different for those two different types of claims, and the district court didn't really make the distinction required by law and decided that even for our constitutional First Amendment claim, that we didn't have standing. And again, this is one of those things you have to stop and think about and let it sink in. But what we were doing here, the lawyers committee and all of our supporters, and we had, I don't know, at least 2,000 folks who signed on to that petition, and I think more have since. Um, we were exercising our right under the First Amendment to petition a federal government entity, and that federal government entity in this case was a special grand jury. Now, we also wanted the U.S. attorney to do the right thing, so you could treat the petition also as a petition to the U.S. attorney, but it was on its face explicitly stated to be a petition to the special grand jury, and we explicitly requested the U.S. attorney to deliver it for that purpose. So what the U.S. attorney did in our case was to obstruct the delivery of our petition intended for another federal government entity. So you have one government entity obstructing the exercise of the First Amendment right to petition involving another government entity. That's simply unconstitutional. And the federal law is clear that anytime a federal official or government agency obstructs your constitutional rights, including the right to petition, that you, the party that's been harmed, the party that had their right to petition obstructed, has standing to sue to get judicial relief 
to remove the obstruction and have your rights respected. That law really isn't ambiguous. It's been well established. But the district court didn't re- did not recognize it. So we are to lead up to Barbara's point about the next potential uh, significant legal development. We don't know the outcome yet. Uh, we did appeal to the second highest court in this country, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York. And uh, that appeal has been fully briefed on this issue. And what we want the, the Court of Appeals to do is to direct the U.S. attorney to do his or her duty to deliver our petition to the grand jury and also to recognize our standing under the First Amendment to have that petition delivered and to instruct the U.S. attorney to stop obstructing that delivery. Uh, We have an argument currently scheduled to be live before the Court of Appeals in New York uh, set for January 21st. And we hope to be talking with you, Gintia, about that shortly after we make that argument. Uh, We, of course, can't predict what the Court of Appeals will do on the case, but I can say that I am, as a lawyer, cautiously optimistic. I've given up trying to predict what courts will do, but I am cautiously optimistic on the First Amendment argument in particular because the law is so clear that a government agency simply doesn't have the right to obstruct the exercise of a right to petition, and any citizen whose right is obstructed has standing to sue. I'm you know, cautiously optimistic that's going to be recognized. Uh, if it is, then the outcome could be quite significant. It could be that for the first time in 20 years since the tragic events of 9-11, that a federal grand jury will actually be able to look at the evidence uh, regarding the use of explosives in the towers and Building 7 on 9-11. And that evidence is so dispositive that, uh, you know, what will the grand jury do with that? Well, that's up to them to decide. But it could lead to a very significant breakthrough on the overall issue, and we're certainly hopeful that it will. Uh, Mick, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Um, I think it would be uh, maybe a good idea uh, at this point um, to let people know. I know that you've done this in a kind of a broad way, but to kind of focus in on uh, what the petition is. And by the way, everyone should know that you can read the historic grand jury petition to the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, um, uh, asking that U.S. Attorney to deliver it to a special criminal grand jury on the dispositive, meaning proof, basically, in layman's terms, um, provable evidence that World Trade Centers 1, 2, and 7 were destroyed and collapsed due to pre-placed explosives and incendiaries. Now, that is a completely different uh, explanation for what happened to cause the deaths of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in the World Trade Center towers on 9-11. So um, the petition can be read on the uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry website. Anybody who wants to read that, um, actually, all you need to do is in the homepage for this show, if you scroll down below uh, our photos and bios, uh, and then you scroll down below Richard's few items, because he wasn't able to be Richard Hoagland on tonight, and then you will get to Lawyers Committee items in Radio with Pictures, 
And there will be a link there to go to the grand jury petition on Robeside Centers 1, 2, and 7. That is the substance of our mandamus action that Mick will be giving in-court oral arguments uh, in the appeals court in Manhattan, federal appeals court in Manhattan, on January 21st. Just a little tip for our audience. Yeah. You can use the fast links to navigate there instantly. Just click on the link for 911 inquiry. Right. So at this point, um, Mick, any uh, final comments you'd like to make about the oral arguments? Um, I don't know if we know if they're going to be live streamed yet. Um, you might want to address that. And then I think we should turn it over to Richard for his comments about this, these two historic cases uh, and also to Christina before we talk about the film project. Okay. So um, the oral argument is still a bit in flux because of the pandemic in terms of what procedures will be used. It's technically currently scheduled to be live in New York, which means I would appear in person and give the argument before the judges who would be in person. That may change because of developments with the pandemic as it has with courts in the past. And we, we won't know for a few more days. We'll get the word out to our website. Um, and let you know how you can watch or listen once we know, uh, it's possible that folks will be able to attend in person, but uh, I'm a little pessimistic given what's happening with the pandemic, but I don't know. Um, so stay tuned for more news on that. We'll get it out in, in a, a few days or a week or so and let you know. Uh, the last point I would like to make before we go to Richard is that the two cases we're talking about that are developing to you know, some significant culmination, uh, the Freedom of Information case and this uh, federal appeal on the grand jury petition are, are, you know, both related to the demolition evidence that Richard has been working on for so many years, as have we. And you, I guess I'd like you to sort of ask yourself a couple of questions. One is, why, why is it that FEMA and NIST have worked so hard to ignore the demolition evidence and also to avoid giving us the records used in their studies. You know, FEMA is still claiming they can't find key records, which is what the case we talked about. NIST is still refusing to give their modeling for their study of Building 7's collapse, which they're being sued on that by architects and engineers, and I'm representing AE in that suit. So, you know, what are they really got to hide here and why are they trying to hide it, given that they're federal agencies? Um, if we get a win in the Second Circuit and a remand to the New York District Court to get an order that the U.S. Attorney give the evidence of demolition to the grand jury, we may start to see a breakthrough uh, and start to get answers to those questions. With that, I will I will turn the mic back to either Kintia or Richard. Well, I just like to say, may it be so. I think that justice will proceed, and here we go. Here we go. You're un, it's a, the uh, unraveling. The unraveling is happening because the more people that know that FEMA <laughs> is refusing to give the documents, well. You know, if it smells like fish, there's something there. Mm -hmm. So, Richard, would you like to share with us a little bit from your insights? 
Well, sure. And uh, I'm deeply uh, in gratitude and deeply honored by the hard work that the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry has been about. Um, they, they, these recent successes are, are just a smidgen of the uh, overall uh, uh, success that we're expecting uh, in 2022. This is the year of the breakthrough. And I've been at what I've been doing for 15 years, which is assembling the components of the evidence. Uh, and we're going to be, by the way, in, in the third hour uh, of this show, going into it in detail. I mean, piece by piece, so that our listeners really understand what actually happened at the World Trade Center and why we're talking about it in court now. We can only talk about it in court now because for the last four years, the Lawyers Committee has assembled all of this evidence that uh, uh, they packaged it uh, as, as we've assembled it from many hardworking uh, researchers over the last uh, 15 years. So, I mean, it is just uh, so exciting to bring it about. Now, the family members is what this is all about, Kinthea. It, it, this is justice for the loss of their loved ones. Finally, mm -hmm. they're getting some justice uh, because, you know, me going around the world in 24 countries and 110 American cities talking about the evidence is raising public opinion. Us talking it on uh, radio about it on radio programs is educating the public to some extent, but the, the courts are absolutely critical. So that's why I was uh, so honored also to be uh, invited to uh, come on to the uh, board of the Lawyers Committee to, to bring uh, into the Lawyers Committee, inside of the Lawyers Committee, uh, the, the, the knowledge, mostly, I wouldn't say wisdom, uh, but they have the wisdom. I have the, some of this knowledge that, uh, that can be very, very helpful, and I highly encourage people to uh, visit um, uh, Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry and once again, that hard-to-learn URL is lc4for911.org. And uh, there's all of these legal documents are there, and there's, they, they write about them so in a way that you can understand them a little easier for those of us who are not attorneys. I'm an architect. Um, and so uh, I, I'm, I'm delighted that a bulldog such as David Cole, who has been chasing NIST and FEMA uh, for as long as I've been talking about this evidence, um, has succeeded in getting uh, some, some real traction here uh, legally. I mean, and, and the, the, the way uh, Nick has explained explained uh, the lack of response from FEMA and NIST, particularly FEMA, uh, and the judge is just 
lambasting them, saying, you, you didn't even do the most basic responsibilities under the Freedom of Information Act. I mean, the, and so they are Great. they be hard pressed. I mean, it, it's it's going to be hands down victory here. And same with the oral arguments that Nick was talking about. So audience, listen, friends out there, everyone, you know, this is really important information. And like Richard said, the third hour, he's going to be laying out the details. And this is juicy material for you to share with your friends. We need to get momentum. And, hey, we need to reach down to into our pockets to uh, help support this effort, because this is not just for those families. This is for all of us. This is for our freedom. This event happened to take away our freedom. So don't think if you didn't have a relative there that it doesn't affect you. It does affect you. It affects all of us at the core of our livelihood and who we are. Because if we just let these dark agencies walk all over us, what is left? What is left? Come on. We need to support this action. And I can't wait to hear what you're going to share. All the details because, listen, the word will go out. Come on, let's get the word out and let's reach into those pockets and support this fabulous work. Thank you, Richard. Go on. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I just wanted to share at this point what some of the things we're going to be talking about in, in uh, the third hour. Because we've got Building 7, as Mick mentioned, here's a 47-story skyscraper that uh, on the afternoon of 9/11, after the twin towers have come down, not, uh, after and after more witnesses hear more explosions, this building drops like a rock, straight down, uniformly, symmetrically, into its own footprint in under seven seconds. That's free fall acceleration. That's as fast. Oh my as a gosh falling out of the sky. I mean, it's incredible. We're going to go into details about, find out what people knew, what, uh, how the, um, the building could have fallen that fast. What is the evidence that the site tell us? And then, regarding the Twin Towers, a very, very similar set of suspicious circumstances, uh, we'll be talking about the freely flying structural steel sections landing 600 feet in every direction after being shot out at 80 miles an hour horizontally. We'll be talking about the pulverization of 90,000 tons of concrete uh, in the steel uh, completely dismembered and hurled um, uh, so far away uh, and, and what that means for how this building could have been crushed. That was two-thirds of the weight of the building. We'll be talking about the evidence of incendiaries uh, in, in the form of thermite and nanothermite. We'll be talking about uh, the uh, evidence of high-energy explosives. Uh, the witnesses, 156 of them, talking about their own experience and visual and audio witnessing of explosions and extreme temperatures that the official story can't even account for in the World Trade Center aftermath in the form of molten iron, uh, which, of course, uh, takes more than three or four times 
the temperatures uh, that office fires and jet fuel can't can't even get to. So it, it, it's it's going to be exciting. Uh, Richard, go ahead. Hi. Yeah, I that's Barb. I just like to um, to be really clear for people why this really matters. Um, but Richard is going to be detailing in the third hour. And uh, by the way, in the next hour, um, we're going to be going into the Lawyers Committee's new film project, which is intimately related to our World Trade Center grand jury petition, uh, the mandamus action regarding which Mick will be giving in-court oral arguments, we expect, on January 21st. What really matters about this, and you can read the evidence for yourself in our World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7 Grand Jury Petition on the Lawyers Committee website, lc4911.org. Why does it matter? It matters because we have shown with the evidence over something like 60 evidentiary exhibits are attached to our petition on the World Trade Center collapses. Um, the reason it matters is that the vast majority of people who died in the World Trade Center died because the buildings were brought down by pre-placed explosives and incendiaries. Those buildings were intentionally destroyed. The vast majority of people who died there did not die from a plane impact and fires on those floors. That simply did not happen. They died from the collapse of the towers by these pre-placed explosives. So it's for those people um, and their family members that we are doing this to get justice for them. Intentional murder is what it was. Yeah. Yes, so. and all, all the firefighters, over something like 350 firefighters uh, died in those towers because uh, they were inside the towers when the order was given to bring them down. Well, 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 somebody wait. needs to mute. Something is going on, please. <laughs> Go ahead, Barbara. We're almost at break time, by the way. So. Yeah, yeah. So after the break, um, we're going to go to uh, Richard and, and uh, uh, to kind of introduce Christina. our new film project, mm -hmm. and then to Christina to talk about it because she's she is the director of the new film project. Wonderful, wonderful. So I just want to remind you all that uh, the the uh, site for um, the website for getting to it is. Uh, where it just disappeared on me. Here it is. It is L's Lawyers Committee. Oh, you write that out. Lawyers Committee no, nine. No, you don't need to. Oh, okay. You can just shorten it. Say it. Say it, Barbara. Yeah, L. Yeah. Larry C is in Charlie. Four F O R nine one one dot org. L C four nine one one dot org. And if you can help us with your donation, we would greatly appreciate it. Right at the top right of the web page. It's really easy to find. Wonderful. So we are on the other side of midnight. Our guests tonight are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Christina Borgensen. And the show is called Major Legal Breakthrough in the 911 Conspiracy. We shall return.
www.themidnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyperdimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcast heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. side of midnight tonight our guests are barbara honiger mick harrison richard gage and a new guest christina borgensen and we are having a discussion concerning the important evidence and work that they are doing around the 911 event that was to take away our freedoms frankly but they will be revealed And I just want to give my deep appreciation to this amazing panel of guests. And I want to, again, encourage you all to donate to keep this work going. It's for all of us. Co-hosting tonight with me has been Barbara, but we also have Keith Morgan, our sound engineer, and he will be chiming in, I'm sure. I love to hear from Keith. And uh, I am Kinthea, and I have been the producer on this show for the past five years, and I am moving on to continue with the other side of the news and my art. But I will be saying, ooh, (laughs) what was that? (laughs) That was a plane. (laughs) No. (laughs) Okay, I wonder if I was the only one who heard that. Hmm. Okay, so... Uh, Richard, you want to share with us about this important film that's coming up and bring Christina on. I'm so excited to uh, welcome Christina to our show. She hasn't been yeah, on before. It, it, it's it's exciting. Um, uh, and and Christina is um, she, she's she's got the the vision uh, for uh, for how to take this evidence 
and put it into the hearts of the grand jurors. Because what, what has to happen here is we have to get past their cognitive dissonance. Just like when you try to tell somebody what happened at the World Trade Center and, and they don't have the frame of reference to, to um, a, a, a allow the implications of what you're saying, even if it were true, um, they, they, they can't let it in because the implications are devastating to a lot of people's worldview, which means, uh, for instance, if the towers were blown up, and they were, then what does this mean for me? Uh, and, and by the way, Barb, uh, that scratching is indeed you. So you, you'll need to go on mute, Barb. Oh, um, thank yeah, you. Thanks. Um, and so what does this mean for my safety in the world? I mean, we're talking about high levels of government involved in mass murder and treason. I mean, that's not easy to just kind of accept. We're talking about 95% of the mainstream media censoring the story of the crime of the century. How does that happen? That the media is supposed to be our fifth estate. They watch out over the government on behalf of us, the American people. Somebody up there in government levels has to have our back. Surely our legislators who put together, um, or well, some of whom were involved in the 9-11 commission would have blown the whistle if this was some sort of an inside operation, a false flag operation. Well, guess what? The grand jurors are people too. Uh, Mick assured me of that. Uh, and Richard, can I give you yeah. a, can I give you an insight since I worked at ABC news for 30 years, an electronics technician, and I got, uh, to that might be very helpful. I got to see a lot of stuff behind the scenes and you're dealing with human beliefs and a lot of times when things come across people's desks, it's like, well, I don't believe that. Instead of saying, well, let's look into it and see what's going on. Uh, I remember Ted Koppel used to drop me off at my car every, every night after the show. And we talk about stuff. And I said, one night, I said, Ted, I think the cigarette companies have a conspiracy going. And he said, Keith, do you really think the tobacco industry has a conspiracy going? And I'm like, there's people blowing the whistle on them and nobody's listening to them. Oh, but then when the guy at the top, the CEO or whatever, blew the whistle, oh, now it's a story? Why weren't you listening to the peons, the people who you report the news to every night when they all got together and they're telling you something's going on and you weren't listening to them? And that's the kind of stuff that goes on. And I, I was at a presidential uh, election in Manchester and a guy comes in and he says, I'm on the ballot for being president of the United States. And I asked the producer, are we going to give him any airtime? Oh, he doesn't want to be really be president. He just has he just wants to make a statement. And I'm like, OK, but that's the way this kind of stuff behind the scenes goes on. They don't they don't take anything seriously if they don't believe it. 
rather than saying, let's look into it. And I see it. I saw it happen again, again, and again. And most of the people have made up their mind that the World Trade Centers were taken down by terrorists. The government had nothing to do with it. There was no uh, internal explosions and thermite and all of this stuff that brought the buildings down. But yet, Building 7, nothing happened to it. Nothing fell on it. But it came down, didn't it? Like a controlled demolition. This is the kind of stuff that goes on. And they just ignore it. Oh, that... That, that couldn't have happened. That couldn't have, this couldn't have happened. And I watched all the stuff take place with the Mars incident when they manipulated my camera crew along with the rest of the media. We're from Goddard Space Flight Center in 1988. And I'm sitting out there wondering, where's my camera crew? Then I find out later that NASA sent out a press release that day announcing a briefing about Mars at the National Press Club. And everybody who said they were going out to Goddard, including my camera crew that was assigned, they went down to the National Press Club. And I'm sitting out there in a packed auditorium wondering, why isn't the media here? Because when you start dealing with stuff that they can't explain and they can't deal with, then they start to cover this stuff up. I talked to my mom's old boss when he was president of the United States. And I told him about you know, how he worked. On, she worked under him when he was uh, director of central intelligence. He autographs a card, gives it to me. And then he says something about, you know, if the American people knew what we had done, they'd run us out of town on a rail tarred and feathered. And I was not about to ask him what the heck he meant by that because I didn't want to lose my White House clearance, my Capitol Gallery pass, and my D.C. police pass, because that's the kind of security clearance I had. So stuff like that goes on behind the scenes. Things are there that we don't know about, and we never get the true story. We never get the true story. When Ted gave me the opportunity to do two shows, and I'm an electronic technician, but he gave me the opportunity to do a show on the Phoenix Lights and Project Disclosure. And when I talk to the people involved, like uh, Frances Emma Barwood, and she's telling me the story about how she got involved with this whole thing with the Phoenix Lights. And she tells me a second story about how the council had voted, no, we'll not build a road through the Veterans Cemetery. But then she gets a call in the middle of the night, you gotta get out to the cemetery. They're trying. <laughs> she gets out there and they're trying to build this road. They've got bulldozers, dump trucks, she first thought they could stop them, but then, nope. She figured they're gonna could plow her under and her friend, and they'd never know what happened to them. So they went and got help. They stopped them, but then it went from local control to federal control. By the time it came back to local control, she said all this acreage was missing. Wow. And she says this was like, you know, it was uh, the mayor was a, a realtor or something. This is the kind of stuff that happens behind the scenes. Nobody pays attention to this stuff because they don't think this stuff happens. And now is the time for us to be all paying attention. And that's what your film is about, uh, Richard and Christina. I'm really curious, Christina, uh, I want to know, I, it seemed to me that you were suggesting, Richard, that the film is going to be for the jury. Is it for the jury? Is it for the public? Is it for both? What? I'm so curious here. <laughs> Well, everybody's going to get to see it. But what we're trying to do is tailor it so that it can get into the hearts of the jurors past their minds, past their mental cognitive 
dissonance. Mm-hmm, what and, Keith was talking about. Yeah, if we, if we can accomplish that, you know, we can have them uh, acting on behalf of the evidence rather than their own fear. Because what, what we're dealing with uh, with regard to 9-11 is a, a psychological operation against the American people uh, of shock and awe. That is fear-inducing. We went to war. We invaded two countries. We killed two million people in the Middle East uh, based on our reaction to uh, uh, being manipulated with fear. Um, That's an anger. Fear turns into anger. Mm -hmm. And we were just played, and we're being played again uh, with COVID. Uh, It's all a fear operation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you think that the jurors are going to feel threatened? I mean, are their identities being kept secret or, you know? Well, um, um, and talk more about the operations of, of secrecy. Certainly the grand jury operates in secrecy. We don't know who they are. Certainly the attorney general, uh, excuse me, the U.S. attorney does. Um, uh, so... That's a that's a valid question. Mick could uh, address that perhaps uh, uh, more easily since you brought it up, and then we can come back to the to the film because it is an important part of this film too. So, should I address the secrecy issue? Is that the question? Yeah, and the safety yeah. of the jurors. Well, you want you do want to make sure that you don't get retaliation against the jurors while they're trying to decide what to do with the evidence. So that purpose of secrecy is legitimate. The secrecy has been overdone in some cases. Uh, there is a, a federal statute and a federal rule of procedure that provides that uh, witness testimony to the grand jurors is to be kept secret, does not require a witness to not disclose their own testimony. A witness can disclose their own testimony publicly. Um, so that, you know, and that secrecy lasts until the grand jury decides what to do on the case. If they issue an indictment, the indictment becomes public. If there's a prosecution, then the prosecution and the evidence used in that prosecution becomes public. Um, And there are some ins and outs, uh, which we actually are litigating before the Second Circuit as part of the appeal we talked about in terms of when you might get grand jury records before the conclusion of the inquiry, uh, we're actually asking in that case for just enough of the grand jury, what we call ministerial records, to show that our petition was delivered without disclosing any testimony. The Second Circuit will be deciding that question as well. So there is um, secrecy up to a point. Uh, ultimately, you know, the grand jury's action needs to be disclosed, and uh, special grand juries can actually do a public report of their findings, even if they don't do an indictment, particularly when there's government misconduct involved. So we're sort of hoping that that would be a result in our case as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe so. Powerful. Uh, Kinthea? Yes. Yeah. Um, to, to segue back into this film project that's so exciting that Richard started talking about now, we want to also bring in Christina, who is yes. the director of the film. 
Um, I just want to make clear to people to answer your question, Chris, uh, Kintia, that the film is um, going to be available to the public, uh, but uh, it will. The film itself um, will be bringing to life in video, uh, in a documentary format, uh, in the courtroom, uh, interaction between Mick and Richard Gage in an actual courtroom. Um, that film will be uh, bringing to life the evidentiary exhibits in the uh, World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7 grand jury petition. And the film will then be submitted as a formal supplement to the grand jury petition to the actual grand jurors as this is, evidence. This is wonderful. You know how Richard loves to say, if it were real, it'd be on TV. <laughs> You know, so be on the other side of midnight. Right, right. So having it, I I can tell you, I I made three books of my art, and it wasn't until they were in books that I thought, oh my God, they're real. <laughs> it seems so funny. I'm surrounded by canvases, but there's something about having it in some kind of form that is tangible. You know, whether it's a video or a book, that makes it more credible to the audience. It's, it's a strange thing, phenomena, but it's true. Right, that is true. So, Richard, if you could give us a thumbnail of the film project, and then let's bring in uh, Christina, who's been waiting patiently. Yes. <laughs> so, as Barbara began to uh, mention, uh, Mick will set the, 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 the stage legally. Well, what is evidence? What is this evidence, why is it important? What is the crime um, that we're talking about? Um, and, and Mick will be uh, asking me questions about the evidence and, 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 and addressing the, jur the grand jurors into the camera right along the way. And I will be uh, answering the questions and providing very detailed uh, components of evidence in bite-sized pieces that we will uh, issue um, uh, 10 or 20 minute segments of uh, over the course of the next uh, several months. And, and then uh, these uh, collective, well, individually can be uh, seen uh, by the public as well and used to educate uh, their fellow uh, skeptical friends, colleagues, politicians, media representatives, etc. And but the jurors are the are the real target here. And and so the public will be in the position of of um, actually seeing the evidence that the jurors will be judging. Thus the the public will be invited to judge uh, uh, the evidence as well. And then to come up with uh, opportunities uh, to give us feedback, uh, su such as who should we recommend uh, to the, the grand jurors that they subpoena in order to get more information. And uh, Mick will want to talk about that, but I know we also have to get to Christina too, because she's the most exciting part of this right. whole thing. She's tying the whole thing together. I just want to punctuate here that this, as far as I know, is the first time this is being done in a in a court situation. And I want to ask anyone except for Christine and Richard to mute. 
So there's no background noise. And I'm going to pass it over to Christina. Welcome, Christina, to the other side of midnight. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I think Richard outlined it pretty well. Um, as a documentary filmmaker, uh, I like also to uh, make sure that the audience knows, I mean, the two main characters in this in this series of of short of short pieces are are um, Mick and Richard, and um, I want I want the audience to get to know who they are as people. You know, people who have are sort of major public servants, as it were, because they've they've sacrificed a lot of time and effort. Um, and their own personal resources to address this huge, huge issue and to seek uh, justice and accountability for the victims. And, and everybody should remember that we're all victims. Uh, people now forget that before 9-11, they didn't have to line up in an airport and be patted down or, you know, go through machines or be surveilled to within an inch of their lives. All our lives have been affected on a day-to-day basis very intensely as a result of uh, what happened on 9-11. And if you listen very carefully to Mick describing what went on uh, over those years when he was fighting he on behalf of David Cole to get to get this information that what he was talking about was our tax dollars that we pay our government going into this expensive and long duplicitous effort to withhold from the public information that they have a right to have. And that duplicity, unfortunately, never really gets addressed and punished. You just have to keep trying to get the judge to force them to not be duplicitous. But they can't be called out for being they aren't it's hard to call them out for being duplicitous you can't you can't hold them accountable for that so what makes this project unique is that nobody first of all the lawyers committee in itself is unique this is the only organization that is actually trying to make cases and and putting together petitions, trying to take the evidence to court um, on all the major events that occurred, because 9-11 is a series of events in a series of venues. Um, And we haven't even talked about the anthrax attacks. But anyway, so what I want to try and do uh, with, you know, my vision is to really show people through the interactions, uh, first of all, let people know who these two amazing characters are because Mick Mick is is quite brilliant at what he does and Richard has done something unprecedented which is gather all these experts you know who have joined him in questioning 9/11 and these are all people these are all you know highly trained people and people who know their stuff and they know buildings and so on. 
So it's not going to be some sort of dry, this is this and that is that presentation. It's, it's going to be a fight. What you're going to see is a fight, okay? Because you're going to see what the other side <clears throat> is trying to say. You're going to see what the duplicitous agencies are putting out. You'll, see, you'll even see their, their faces in, in video and stuff, you know, uh, particularly, you know, Building 7. By the way, I think it was Building 7 is 52 stories, not 47. But anyway... Um, the, you know, NIST's Building and Fire Research Laboratory Director, Shyam Sunder, I mean, he did a presentation, and they even came up with a new, a new term, uh, you know, thermal expansion. They had to come up with a new term for this, this, <laughs> this you know, to cover this bo- bogus uh, explanation that they were giving. Uh, to the public about what happened. And it had never happened before and hasn't happened since, this uh, thermal expansion. So that tells you everything you need to know. But that's that's what I want to do, is I want to create... It's, it's both a presentation, but it's also a, a very dramatic fight where all the information that um, it, that Richard has gathered meets... And, and, you know, all the disinformation and lying that the government has, these government agencies have done, they meet Mick and, and Richard uh, where the laws hits the, hit the crimes. And so you can see, you, you'll be able to see how major and how multiple <laughs> the crimes are through this process. And so people can will actually get also a look at how how it would actually look in the courtroom. And once you can once you see it, you can make it happen. Well, this is very exciting, Christina. I you know, it's a. It's going to be a privilege to be on the inside of a courtroom in that sense, to to have an inside view and to be, it makes the work so much more intimate, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, that's the word, intimate. When you can lay out the story, it, it makes it hard for people to ignore the truth of it. And, and yes. go ahead. Well, I, I just wanted to say, another reason why it's really important is because a lot of these efforts, you know, the FBI was in charge of of the 9/11, of um, getting to the bottom of 9/11, and which, of course, they did not. And if you talk to a lot of FBI people who were actually involved in the in, in the investigation, uh, in one way or another, either before, during, or after, it, it, they they can't wrap their minds around the the demolition evidence they can mm-hmm. they just won't even consider it you know and and that could be for for a lot of reasons um <clears throat> just sort of self-preservation in terms of okay we did this thing and we failed massively or you know some of them i think were were actually com- i don't think i'm fairly certain uh were actually complicit and so on you know but um, it's 
those it's very, very important for the white hat honest brokers in these agencies that are responsible for a lot of um, disinformation and for covering up the truth. It's very important for the good good people in those agencies to see this too. Mm-hmm. Yes, certainly. And, you know, it is a mix. There are some that are covert and some that really are honest. And uh, I think this is really going to help shake it out because without evidence, it's hard to defend that you think, oh, this really happened. But you're going to be putting the evidence into their hands. And it's not just that, too. They're going to see how an honest process in the courtroom should unfold Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay not a rigged one okay what what if you're not rigging the system if you're not rigging the court system this is what this case this is how this case is going to be presented this is this is the honest process that you can watch unfold so that you can see what did and didn't happen and you you will be you will be the juror you will be all the viewers are the jurors mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's that's the that's, that's the bringing idea. it right home right, right home may justice prevail exactly. so we're about to go to break here i want to let our audience know that i have posted on the page under the 911 inquiry items at the top lc for 911.org and i put a link to donate it says help Justice Prevail, donate to this important court case to ensure our freedoms. And the link is there to directly donate. Donate. Let's keep this going. This is for all of us. This is for all of us. These heroes here that are on this conversation with us, really, they've stepped forth to ensure our freedoms and that this terrible crime be brought to justice. I mean, this is the most important case ever in on this planet that has ever been. Seriously. So come on. <laughs> so we're going to go to break. You're on the other side of midnight. I'm co-hosting with Keith Morgan and Barbara Honiger. And I love you guys. Let's go to break. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and nonlinearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. The other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. 
Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. You said, okay, go. <laughs> Thank you very Sorry much. About that. <laughs> Thank you very thing. much. <laughs> I should start singing. <laughs> that was, by the way, that sounded like our own Chris Rogers uh, playing music there. He's really quite a talented musician. He's our other uh, editor, sound editor. So our show tonight is called Major Legal Breakthroughs in the 911 conspiracy and our guests are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger and our new guest Christina Borgensen. So Christina, would you like to continue some more? I really love that you're going to make us the jurors. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right. Uh, okay. Mute it. Oh, Christina, it helps to unmute. Yes, you're right. <laughs> right. That's well, good. We got to keep just, something light. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just think that um, people are going to. It, it, it's a lot of people. First of all, nine eleven happened a long time ago for a lot of people, and a lot of people are sort of, oh, you know, this. This this happened. Yeah, forget it. Forget it. Let's just move on. But but this is a, a watershed moment that that because it hasn't been addressed. Um, it, 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 and again, if you don't address a major crime when it occurs, the criminal or criminals are going to feel as if they can be even. They're emboldened if they're not held accountable. They'll go on to, to do bigger and better things. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's what's happened in this case. And so I think that um, when people have a chance to actually hear and see and get to know these people who are bringing this case, Okay, this case into the courtroom and to see the expert witnesses and how they handle the expert witnesses and to hear uh, the 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 other side and how they respond through documents and through videos and so on. And when it's all put together, you can see how not only how colossal the fight is, 
but how colossal the crimes are. And, and I think at that point, the light will switch on and people, because also the other thing that we have to remember is that 9-11 traumatized people. And when you're traumatized, you don't want to visit, you don't want to mm-hmm. revisit that trauma. Mm-hmm. And an, go ahead. Well, there's also the factor that we have a, a new generation. 20 years ago, you know, yeah. those those people that were babies, young people, they're now of voting age. And to them, it's it's like it never really happened because they didn't they were too young to understand the impact and they were too young to remember what life was like before 911. Yeah. You were mentioning, you know, how we could just go through an airport easily and now all this rigmarole they put you through. So oh, this yeah. whole new generation, you know, it's a new generation here is going to be educated in an experiential way to really get it in their gut what really happened and what was taken from them. Yeah, and really. they're, they're going to see that their normal is not you know, normal. It's not normal. <laughs> you know, and the and that's the problem is that we, you know, it's also a race against time because as generations ensue. Uh, the normal, the new normal becomes more of more of that, you know, more. I mean, now what's your new normal? You get on a train. If you go to Washington, you get out, you get out into the train station and you see everywhere and you hear the voice saying, if you see something, say something, right. you know, it's so Orwellian. I mean, the, the world has become so Orwellian and this, 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 these events, this series of events, was what opened the door for the quickening of that process. And and so that's another thing that this series will show is is how it how it how a the seminal acts were carried out, what was done. I also I also want to add what you're saying and it is a seminal act here is that this fear that they're feeding on you you talk about them being traumatized and how they will become more emboldened for bigger actions well that's what they've done with the covid pandemic exactly that's exactly what they've done they have used fear as a tool and the young the youngsters coming up i mean you know i have a stepson who's 12 and i take him to school and and I just see all these kids just going along like little sheep with their little masks and then just um, it, it never questioning anything, never questioning any science about anything. It's just they're just following around like little robots, little good puppies. Be a good little puppy. Don't question anything. And these criminals have become emboldened. They <laughs> they didn't stop with 911. They have become emboldened and they're ready for their next step, folks. It's on the world stage. It's the global takeover. And this is a, a linchpin here, right here, right here. This court case is going to help that dominoes to bring those dark forces down because we are in a battle now between the the illumination of our intelligence and spirit and light and fear being controlled by fear. And it's time that we 
really recognize what we're up and acknowledge it. Like you say, so many people have been traumatized. They don't even want to talk about it. They want to pretend it didn't happen. But it did happen, folks. It did happen. And it's time for us to stand up and be counted, so to speak. And if nothing else, go to this film and share it with your friends. I can't wait for it to come out. So thank you, Christina. Go ahead, dear. No, I mean, that's, you know, and, and I would encourage people to go and and read read the uh, petitions that have been uh, that we've done on the anthrax attacks. Those were the follow-on anthrax attacks, and uh, the petition on the demolitions. Because I, uh, I'm telling you, it's it's like reading. Uh, they're 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 well written, and they're not comp. You know, it's not complicated writing. It's not complicated. It's just laying out the story, and it's it's shocking. They're absolutely shocking. It's like reading a. You wish you were reading a small nonfiction novel. You really, <laughs> when I first read, and, and you know, that's the, the whole committee, of course, works very hard on this. But, but Mick is our, is our leader. And as I said, he's, he's, he's quite brilliant. And he's a brilliant legal strategist. I mean, you know, some of these, the, uh, these obviously, these uh, victories that we're, that are kind of that, well the the victory that we won and one that we think we might we might win soon, um, you know, are because he he really knows his law and he knows how, how and when and where to apply it. But uh, again, if you just look at the details and how they're laid out and it's sort of in a timeline fashion, it's it's absolutely shocking, but it's also very heartening. It's very heartening because people have taken the time to dig out what happened and present them in a, in a way that is very clear and presents the evidence and says, you know, these are the applicable laws uh, to, to these crimes. And you, it, it gives you hope that, oh, okay, this is how this should be addressed and this is how, and, and, that's what's going to be on. That's what's going to be on film, you know. So I I think that it's going to be both shocking but also heartening for people because the work has been done, you know. Just get it into a courtroom and do exactly what we showed you in this series of films, you know. Can can you? Yes. Yeah, I would like to add a few. This is Barb, and I I'd like to add some. Pretty major, big picture points. Please. Um, the first one is just to be absolutely explicit. The the uh, real perpetrators who killed the vast majority of the American and international citizens who died on 9-11 are still at large. They're armed with weapons of mass destruction. They're highly dangerous, and they can do it again. Um, that's number one. So. You know, people say, well, why should I care about this? They're still at large. They can do this to you again. Right. And we've, we've proven that they did it once. And then I'd also like to make the explicit link between 9-11 and the anthrax attacks, which really were a, a single uh, plot, a single conspiracy. There were two parts to it, but they are in integrally related. And... Uh, when people go to the Lawyers Committee website, LC, 
for911.org, at the very top, there's a horizontal menu. And over on the left, in the upper left, you will see the anthrax petition. Click on that. That's what Christina was just referring to. And then over to the right is the World Trade Center grand jury petition. Click on that. And that's what the film is going to be bringing to life, the evidentiary exhibits that are part of that World Trade Center 1, 2, and 7 grand jury petition. So what is the link between 9-11 and the pandemic? Well, the link is the anthrax attacks, which were an integral part of the 9-11 attacks. And we have demonstrated that. We have demonstrated that dispositively, which in legalese means we've proven it. Okay, And you will be able to see the evidence for yourself. It hits you between the eyes and the forehead like with a two by four. All you have to do is read it. And what I'd like to do now, just before um, we go back to talking about the film and maybe about the anthrax petition, and I'd like to turn that over uh, certainly to Mick uh, to give a a summary of the anthrax, the evidence of the anthrax petition. But I would like to um, have people uh, remember that they can scroll down on the page for this show, and I've gone to the trouble for the show under 911 inquiry items, that's lawyers' inquiry items (laughs) in Radio with Pictures. The first one is a summary of our legal victory on the Freedom of Information Act World Trade Center, uh, World Trade Center uh, records case, okay? Uh, And then um, you are also going to have links there for the grand jury petition on the World Trade Center. You're going to have also the 41-page court ruling on our legal victory on the Freedom of Information Act uh, request case for the World Trade Center records. And number two um, is, uh, if you click on that link under... Uh, the Lawyers Committee items on the homepage for the show, uh, the show page, you will see uh, the article on our new board members. Uh, we have new board members in addition to Christina and Richard Gage. We have two other very exciting new board members. You can read their bios there. The first one uh, who joined uh, our board in the last few weeks uh, is uh, attorney Bruce Lighty. And uh, attorney Bruce Lighty is known, uh, he's famous in the 9-11 truth community because he was the attorney for Ellen Mariani. Now, many people may not know her name. Unfortunately, she's no longer with us. But Ellen Mariani, of all of the thousands and thousands of 9-11 victims' family members who lost loved ones on 9-11, either in the towers, the Pentagon, or the planes, or in Shanksville. Of all of those thousands of 9-11 victims, family members, and survivors, only one, only one said, I don't want the blood money and hush money, Feinberg fund money. I just want the truth. I want to know why my husband really died. And that was Ellen Mariani, and her attorney just joined our board. Bruce Lighty. And the other attorney besides uh, besides Bruce Lighty, who just joined our board, is Charlotte Dennett. 
of Vermont. Charlotte Dennett ran for attorney general of the state of Vermont on a platform to bring uh, President Bush, Vice President Cheney, Rumsfeld and company to justice and accountability for their 9-11 crimes. And she has written a book called The People Versus Bush, meaning at the time President George W. Bush for the 9-11 crimes and how to bring them to justice. So, of course, uh, both of these new attorney board members have many, many other wonderful uh, uh, credentials, and you can read about that uh, at number two in the link there. The link in number three, this is very important. Uh, Number three goes back to what I said, that the link between 9-11 slash anthrax, because the anthrax letter attacks in 9-11 were an integral conspiracy, an integral conspiracy. And the link between 9-11 and the pandemic is the anthrax attacks, because the anthrax and the anthrax letters, especially to Senators Leahy and Daschle, were weapons of mass destruction of ultimate military engineered quality. And you will read about that in our anthrax petition, our anthrax letter attacks petition in the menu at the top of our lawyers committee website. But the exciting thing about number three um, under radio with pictures of our items is in this link that will take you to uh, the video of the lawyers committee's uh, live stream, global live streamed event for the 20th anniversary of 9-11. That event went on for eight hours and you can watch it just an hour at a time or a presentation at a time. But the title was 9-11-anthrax because it was an integral conspiracy. 9-11-anthrax to the pandemic, the current ongoing pandemic, life and liberty in the balance. You need to watch those presentations. Number four, uh, under our items, the Lawyers Committee items, um, is the grand jury petition uh, to the Southern District of New York. Uh, The big one that we're having the mandamus case where Mick will be in court on January 21st doing oral arguments. And the number five is the lawyer is the direct link to the lawyers committee grand jury petition on the anthrax letter attacks that is the direct link to the pandemic and you will see why when you read that so i just wanted to um to let people know what they can see uh if they go to the lawyers committee items on the page for the show so i'll turn it back to you Cynthia. thank you barbara thank you that was helpful and I highly encourage that you do as Barbara suggested. You will, it will blow you away if you are not familiar with all this material. Uh, the extensive details and thoughtfulness of how they have put together all this information is stunning, as Richard loves to say, stunning. <laughs> I love Richard. God bless Richard. Uh, I'm speaking of Richard Hoagland. You too, Richard Gage, but <laughs> in this moment, I'm speaking of Richard Hoagland. Who I'm missing the audio. Moment. Yeah. Uh, I can hear you, Barbara. Can you hear me? Mm, okay. All right. So, uh, Christina, would you like to share some more about the show? Well, I think I think the most important thing uh, about this show 
and and doing this show is is again um, to reach people and to move people to get involved and and support these efforts because um, I I remember I. I don't know if you you know about the Government Accountability Project, but they take on all kinds of difficult cases. And um, I had worked on a on a uh, petition to the Office of Special Counsel, uh, exposing it was a it was a an affidavit. I submitted it on behalf of uh, Hank Hughes, who was a senior investigator uh, of that plane crash, TWA Flight 800 plane crash. And, you know, there was a, a big cover-up, big cover-up involved uh, with that. And so he'd written an affidavit um, describing it all, and that was submitted to the Office of Special Counsel. And after like a year or so, um, they finally came back and said, well, uh, we can't do any investigations, so we, we can't do anything with this. And the Government Accountability Project was helping us on this. And I just, I was so shocked. I was just so shocked. And, and you know, I was, I can't even describe, I, Tom Devine, who was the lawyer there working with us, he, I was sort of talking to him like he was my shrink or something because I was so shocked that the Office of Special Counsel wouldn't do its job. That and they so, could get away with it. Exactly. <laughs> And he said to me, he said, Christina, he said, if you really want anything to get done, he says, you have to get the public behind you. You have to go out there and you have to communicate with the public. And I was like, but I'm, I'm trying to get, get this into the courts. I'm trying to get justice in the courts. You know, because that's how you get the accountability. That's how people get punished. That's how things stop. He goes, well, you have to go through the public. And that's why this is such, to me, it's such a brilliant project. Because you know what? Whether the courts want it in there or not, it's coming to the courts. And it, and the people, and the juror, the jurors, if it, you know, if we can't get into an actual real court, then we're gonna we're gonna take it into a court anyway, and the jurors are gonna be the public, and the public has a lot of power, rightfully so. When they so. are motivated, the public has a lot of power, and we are serving the public to the best you know to the best of our abilities with the resources that we have, which is why. We depend so much on the support of the public. But, you know, this, this, I believe, I believe this is going to be a very powerful motivator, very powerful motivator. And we have to educate uh, those, those um, members of the public also uh, about the the legalities involved um, so that they can sit and and, and think, um, not like so much like an attorney, but uh, but but not like a, a victim. <laughs> On the other hand, right. Uh, so this is where uh, Mick's uh, mastery will come in, and and I was hoping uh, Mick that you'd spend a couple of minutes uh, setting the stage uh, uh, for the grand jurors in this film about uh, why 
this is coming to them. Uh, and and, and what, what is what is the crime and what is the evidence? Can, can you talk about that too? Uh, sure. So, big picture, the the film project as we envision it will actually go into substantial both legal and scientific technical detail about the demolition crimes, which as Barbara properly pointed out, uh, unfortunately was responsible for most of the deaths on 9-11 at the World Trade Center. The, um, the initial episodes should deal with what I call the first of three mysteries of 9-11. There, there are undoubtedly more, but three major ones that we're addressing, which is why did three steel-framed skyscrapers fall? completely collapse on 9-11, killing so many people. And uh, that mystery has been solved. And and it's been solved by the hard work of uh, engineers, scientists, architects from a variety of quarters over the last 15 years. And that evidence has been summarized very articulately by Richard. And we're going to be presenting it um, because the grand jury needs to understand we're talking about, as has been mentioned, really the intentional mass murder of so many innocent victims by the use of explosives, and that um, that crime is what the grand jury needs to investigate, hopefully solve, and, and then indict the appropriate wrongdoers. Now, that leads to sort of the last two mysteries, which I hope our film project will get into in the later segments. It is certainly my goal to do that. We'll see if resources allow. The second mystery that I hope the grand jury itself will also be able to address, which is why has the government and its agencies, and someone needs to go on mute again, I think. Why has the government and its agencies ignored all this evidence of use of explosives and even covered it up? And, you know, so was there a government cover-up and why? And we intend to get into that into, in the later stages of the film. And we hope the grand jury can address that and maybe issue a public report on it. We'll be inviting them to do that through the presentation in the film. The last mystery is basically who done it. You know, who is responsible for these mass murders and for putting the explosives in the buildings, which also ties to other events which are related like the anthrax attacks, which we may talk about after the break. So we're coming to a hard break now, Mick. So I think we're going to leave that for the other side of the break. You're on the other side of midnight. The show tonight is called Major Legal Breakthroughs in the 911 Conspiracy. Guests are Mick Harrison, Richard Gage, Barbara Honiger, and Christina Borgeson. And we will return. Richard C. Hoagland here. I'd like you to support The Other Side of Midnight by subscribing to Club 19.5 and thereby joining our unique and growing radio community. Tune in to listen to our fascinating guests, pioneers on the out there edge of science and thought, and gain access to exclusive member benefits. To do this, just visit our website, theothersideofmidnight.com, and click on the Join Club 19.5 link in the navigator bar or in the left-hand column. Membership costs $19.95 per month. That's 33 tetrahedral cents a day. I mean, it's the price of a couple of cups of coffee. 
As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to this show and literally hundreds of previous shows on hundreds of different topics going back to 2015 that we have done. Our archive shows have the commercials removed and you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the 19 Point Archives if you prefer. To enhance your listener experience, a new The Other Side of Midnight podcast is being added to all show pages, which will allow you to instantly search the show archives of Radio with Pictures, thus easily accessing the corresponding show. Plus, you can just as quickly access the entire podcast list when you're on the go. I want to personally thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your continuing support, this show would literally not be on the air. Please continue supporting the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available, talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought, and if you like what you hear on the other side of midnight, tell your friends and continue growing the show by having them subscribe to Club 19.5 as well, because we need all of you. And when I say we need you, you're the reason we're doing all this. Hoagland, over and out. side of midnight. This is an amazing conversation we're having with the Lawyers Committee for 911 Inquiry. And in this third hour here, we're going to go into the juicy details that Richard Gage and his team have been accumulating information and testimony and facts that will boggle your mind. And Christina, of course, if you have more to chime in, I'm, I'm not cutting you off your you're part of this team now, part of our show. <laughs> it's so good to have this team back. I really appreciate you all. So, uh, Richard, Christina, where would you like to go now? Well, I wanted to make sure that people really got uh, what Mick was was saying here about the, 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 the crimes. He's going to come in, well, after Christina in, introduces us as as not just characters, but people who have cared for 15 years to dig up the truth and to get it into the courts in mixed cases, in mixed case. And, and, and but then he's, he's, so Christina is going to present us as real people who had also were skeptical of conspiracy theories to the point where I never even imagined such a thing could be true. And upon its presentation to me in 2006, I found myself getting really angry uh, that, that, that this is even, that I'm even listening to this. And uh, I, I, I was, I was just really had, had to, had to be dragged into it. Um, And that happened very fast. And I mean, I was a flag waving Reagan Republican and I remember, uh, you know, rooting for Colin Powell as he was making his indispute, 
irrefutable uh, case for weapons of mass destruction at the UN. And I wanted to go and get those bastards who did this to us. And uh, really bad. That was, uh, uh, and I'd never heard any alternative theory as to how these towers came down. So when I heard this 45-minute presentation uh, by David Ray Griffin uh, on May 29th, uh, I, I, I was, uh, I, I was, I just, I, I guess I would just call it shock. Uh, looking back, I had to pull my van over and listen to, to this evidence, which I'm going to share with your listeners, uh, shortly in this third hour. And, but Mick is, 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 is going to be introduced as a real person who had his own journey into this nightmare and uh, then he's going to have to present that somehow to the grand jury uh, and, and not just um, uh, sugarcoat it either or, and, and not put them to sleep how are you going to do that Mick? Yeah. Oh, and, piece of cake, uh, Richard. sorry go ahead <laughs> no I just wanted to apologize to you Mick I was going to bring the call back to you and I got carried away in my MC mode. <laughs> well, that's okay. We were, we're making them. a point and I cut it off. So please you know, come no back. Problem. So Richard has invited me to do the impossible here. So I'll see what I can do on that. Uh, I mean, the, the trick here is to, is, is basically to help the grand jurors as human beings approach the evidence like Richard and I were forced to embrace it. You know, I, with the lawyers committee, as Richard, as an architect, and as most of the scientists and engineers involved here, we're an evidence-driven, and in our case, law-driven organization. We didn't start with pre-formed conclusions. And in, in Richard, in my case, we resisted initially, I think, uh, the assertions of the use of, of explosives at the Trade Center, and it had to be proven to us. But because of our backgrounds, his in architecture, mine in, in law, once it was proven to us, we then felt an obligation to prove it to the rest of the world, basically. And we've been trying to do that. And now our task, as Richard frames it, is to prove it to a grand jury. And we intend to do that. The, the trick here is to do, as Richard often says, to make the evidence come alive for the grand jurors and to not... Uh, explain it in a dry and technical way, but as in a way that it sort of emotionally impacted us, but then to show that it, it meets the legal standards that a grand jury would apply in reaching an indictment and even that a prosecutor would apply in pursuing a conviction. And the evidence is compelling. Um, and I don't want to steal Richard's role here in describing it in, in detail, but when, when I walked into a meeting of some of my colleagues in Indiana 15 years ago or so and heard someone say there were explosives planted in the building, I had no idea what they were talking about. And these were environmental advocates working on forest protection. I'm an environmental lawyer, among other things. And so I said, you know, what are you talking about? And they told me about David Ray Griffin's presentation and I said, is there any evidence to support this allegation? It's, a, it's obviously a very uh, serious allegation. 
And they said, yes, it's, it's been developed scientifically. And in fact, we have a chemist here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I lived, who's been investigating this, and you can go talk to him. And that turned out to be Kevin Ryan, who is now one of the long-term best-known advocates <clears throat> from the scientific community for 9-11 Truth on the demolition front and other areas. And uh, Kevin educated me. He's a whistleblower as well as being a chemist. I had his own experience being a whistleblower on 9-11, and so that's how I got involved. And I think our trick, Richard and my trick here in presenting this to a grand jury through the film, and by the way, uh, Kanthea, we did invite the U.S. attorney to allow us to present our evidence directly to a, grand, a real grand jury, and the U.S. attorney has not rushed to take us up on that mm. uh, invitation, but uh, it could still happen if if the Court of Appeals orders our petition to be submitted to the grand jury, the grand jury might invite us to come in. So not only do we hope to present the, the film to the grand jury indirectly by offering it as a, a supplement to our petition and having it delivered to the grand jurors, uh, there is a chance we might actually, Richard and I and others, be able to essentially present it live to the grand jurors. That so would be great, and I'm wondering, does public, does public uh, persuasion affect the judge in making these kinds of decisions? Like, if there's a public swell of interest? No, I would say not. But it um, I, now I, there is an exception that is in freedom of information cases, the public interest value comes into play at certain times in the decision making, but for. The Second Circuit case and our First Amendment and mandamus claims to get the petition delivered to the grand jurors, I would say not. Uh, whether the grand jurors might themselves be influenced by the level of public concern is another interesting question. So, you know, I used to be a, a teacher, uh, well-kept secret. I taught mathematics and psychology for 10 years before I became a lawyer. I've been a lawyer for 30 years. So, I, obviously, I started, you know, at a very young age. But... Um, the, I think Richard and my job here is to basically be teachers for the grand jurors and for the public and, um, you know, to show the eyewitness testimony of all the first responders combined with the, the finding of, you know, evidence of actual unexploded high-tech explosives in the dust with a number of other technical areas Richard will point to, which actually have no other conceivable explanation scientifically than the use of explosives and we need to help the the grand jurors understand that um i occasionally make allusions to the sherlock holmes stories because a lot of the public followed those stories from arthur conan doyle and understand the common sense and logic of some of the deductive techniques one of them is uh, a famous saying by the um, fictional detective when you've eliminated the impossible whatever remains however improbable, must be the truth. I think that's going to be one of the approaches we'll use with the grand jurors is to help them understand that as, as much as we all would probably prefer not to believe the story, the evidence does not allow us any other alternative. So having said that, which I think is long-winded answer to Richard's question, um, what we were going to talk about briefly after the break, which um, Barbara and Christina have mentioned would be the anthrax attacks. It's another component of this mystery of 9-11, uh, 
a lot of folks don't realize is connected, but it was a second wave of terror attacks, which started two weeks, literally two weeks after the 9-11 attacks. A lot of folks don't remember that proximity in time. And it was used publicly by the administration and by some people in the media in the same way that the 9-11 attacks were used to essentially drum up support for the war on terror and the attack on Iraq and Afghanistan. So we did a, uh, the Lawyers Committee did a detailed investigation of the anthrax attacks. We submitted a detailed petition to Congress, and now we've submitted a detailed petition to the U.S. Attorney in Washington, D.C., a separate petition for a separate grand jury. And to make a long story short there, Christina, we hope to unpack some of that evidence in our film projects as well. Um, we did, unfortunately, I'm sad to report, conclude that the FBI literally covered up key evidence regarding the anthrax attacks that would have pointed to, if not to the perpetrators, were at least to the source of the highly sophisticated, highly processed anthrax used in those attacks, which you may remember were used to attempt the assassination of two U.S. senators. A lot of folks have forgotten that, uh, Senators Leahy and Daschle. And so the um, that evidence will be discussed as well in the film project. Um, and, you know, sorry to say that uh, one of the revelations will be that the, the FBI covered up some key evidence pointing to federal facilities and contractors. So I'll stop there and turn it back to uh, you, Cynthia, or Richard. Well, how kind of you, Mitch. Um, <laughs> yes. Thank you. But you didn't answer one question that was really uh -oh. important. Okay. I mean, before the last break, uh, the, the the third mystery was was who done it. Um, would you just explain um, what? I mean, isn't a grand jury supposed to indict people? So who are they going to indict, or are they going to? Indict, are we going to recommend that they indict anybody? How does that? Well, work? that's a good question, and that is a work in progress. Um, I noticed that Christina offered her individual opinion about complicity of high-level government folks in some aspects of this, um, and I think Richard offered something similar, and those are individual opinions. The Lawyers Committee is working on that question, the whodunit part. It's a work in progress. We did submit to the U.S. Attorney for the Special Grand Jury in New York. Uh, we have not made that part completely public. A list of folks that we felt had material information relevant to the grand jury's inquiry, who the grand jury may want to speak to. We uh, did not identify any of those folks as suspects or perpetrators, and some of them clearly, I would think, would not be. But they may well have evidence the grand jury could use. It is the grand jury's job, Richard is correct, um, to pursue not only investigation to the point of proving a crime was committed, which we clearly can establish now with evidence in hand, but to show who did it and to pursue an indictment of those people. Now, uh, you're going to learn as the film project goes along what we're learning about the whodunit component. And so the film project will, even though it's going to be reporting sort of the work already completed on solving the first mystery, thanks to Richard and all of his colleagues out there, uh, 
the second phase about the government cover-up and the third phase about the whodunit, you're going to be learning more about that as we learn more about it. And we're going to actually offer the public a chance to contribute to our investigation as we go along for the film project. So you all out there can help us solve the whodunit portion. Well, and, you know, it's, it's, it's worth noting, um, well, for the World Trade Center uh, and Pentagon attacks, uh, the 9-11 Commission it just ended up calling it a failure of imagination uh, in terms of who let it happen and, uh, you know, pinned it on bin Laden and that was that. Was that. And with the anthrax attacks, even uh, I, I think the anthrax attacks are very interesting because the FBI pinned it on a scientist at Fort Detrick, Maryland, which is an army, uh, you know, an army lab that does did work with anthrax. I, I don't know. It still does. Right, Mick? Um, anyway, they pinned it on Bruce Ivins, who... Um, <laughs> they pinned it on him after he he committed suicide, correct? I think it was well, after he, if I had my time. He died. Right? He died and then they pinned it on him and they alleged he committed suicide. There's some question about the circumstances. Right, right, right. He, uh, but conveniently it was pinned on a guy who was dead before anything could get into a court. So, um there, <laughs> It's just, there's so much highly, highly, highly questionable stuff that when you put it all together, paints a um, very disturbing, very disturbing picture, but a pretty clear one, I'd say, pretty clear one. Um, this is Barb. I'd like to add something, if I could. Go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. Um even though the, the lawyers committee has not taken a public position on it. So um, I'm going to just state this as my own research at this point. Um, but the lawyers committee is fully cognizant of these facts. Um, and an, a, a number of them uh, are actually included in our anthrax petition that was filed on September 11th, just past the 20th anniversary with the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia and the U.S. Attorney General, Merrick Garland. Uh, and so I would just like to point out that we have become aware of um, uh, very uh, solidly documented facts that link anthrax, or at least the uh, expectation of anthrax attacks, before and on 9-11 itself not just weeks afterwards, which is the official story. And I'll just give you the tip of the iceberg of that. Um, one of the facts that is in our grand jury petition that was filed with the U.S. Attorney for the District of Columbia just this past September 11th, 2021, uh, is the shocking fact that not only uh, it's been known for some time, for many years actually, that uh, Vice President Cheney's staff in the White House was put on anti-anthrax antibiotic Cipro on 9-11 itself on an urgent basis. But recently we have discovered that uh, President George W. Bush and his entire 
White House staff that was on Air Force One and all of the military staff that were on Air Force One on 9-11 itself, on the flight back to Washington, D.C. from Offutt Air Force Base, every single person on that plane, including the President of the United States, George W. Bush, were put on the antibiotic, the anti-anthrax antibiotic Cipro. So we basically have the President of the United States, the Vice President of the United States, and the White House staff put on anti-anthrax Cipro on 9-11. The question is why? And Mm -hmm. we are investigating that why. I just wanted to add that. That's a big why. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Now, another big why is is why uh, <clears throat> um, one of the uh, FBI, uh, one of the F- lead, the head FBI investigator, <clears throat> wrote a very long report documenting his <clears throat> his findings and questioning the FBI's choice of culprit, and um, this is a <laughs> this report is being kept under wraps still to this day. The public may not see it. So something's going on there. So we may want to go to Richard uh, and talk about the demolition evidence. Are we ready for that? I'm ready, Mick. Okay, take it away. (laughs) Because... um, after all, uh, we usually begin with, with with the evidence so people know what we're talking about by going to the grand jury, what we're talking about by media censorship uh, and, and the complicity in the drum up to war, what we're talking about um, with uh, the crime of the century. Um, so to me, I mean, this is... This is where the rubber meets the road. But again, for 15 years, we've, we've, we've been educating the American public about this evidence, but uh, we didn't, we didn't, um, we, we, we didn't, we, we haven't had the organization until now uh, to package it and bring it into the courts. So, so what is it that's going to be packaged? We always start with building seven and Christina says, this is where you need to start because um, there's there's people pe- people are disarmed no, uh, about building seven because they don't even know about it. I mean, this is uh, most architects and engineers don't even know that a third high rise collapsed on 9/11, and so and, and there's and so there's no trauma. Nobody died in this building. And so we've been encouraged by Christina to start with building seven because the jurors themselves will be disarmed. They don't know. It's so astonishing. It's absolutely astonishing. People don't know. Well, it's, they, they don't know because they weren't told. Uh, It's been censored from the mainstream media. Uh, I mean, there's two examples of building seven being shown on uh, in both cases, Fox News actually is the only one 
uh, outfit that showed it. I mean, and this is indeed a 47-story skyscraper. Uh, uh, um, I have never heard of 52 stories in this building, and I've been doing this for 15 years. But anyway, uh, it's tall. It's half That's the from the NIST report. That's from What's-His-Face's report. That's very interesting because I've seen them refer to it as a 47-story skyscraper like everybody else also. But I, I need that uh, – reference if you yeah, help yeah. me. There's probably a couple of stories such as the penthouse or whatever that are added anyway. So, well, so Christina, Richard, I may be able to help you with this. I think the 47 stories is the building seven that collapsed and the 52 is the replacement building. There we go. That's it. Mm. The, there's a new building seven that is actually, it is taller, but it's not as big. That's right. Mm -hmm. So uh, well, I just also want to underline the collusion between the media and what's going on here. Like, who owns the media was also involved in this. Well, we'll come back to that. That's that's mm -hmm. pretty important. Uh, I mean, that's that's dreadfully important, <laughs> as it turns out. Uh, so, but regarding uh, this building, at five twenty in the afternoon, both towers have come down. Witnesses nearby hear explosions, and they're on record. And then this building starts to fall without any hesitation, immediately falling straight down, just like the old hotels in Las Vegas. I mean, it, it is it is incredible. Uh, it's a it's a it's a beautiful, perfect implosion, and everybody who sees it, it, it ends up saying, uh, "Yeah, that that's a controlled demolition." We go to architecture firms all around, uh, not firms. Well, we do go to firms, but conferences all around uh, the country, uh, and we have a booth, and they. Uh, the, the, the architects walk by and we show we show on a big screen this building seven uh, collapsing and we go do you do you know what this is and he said uh, looks like a controlled demolition to me they go yeah you're right do you know when that happened and and we go uh, they go uh, we go 9/11 that happened on September 11 2001 they go what that's 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 not one of the twin towers they go no this is the third skyscraper to collapse. They're just in they're now they're listening. They go, what? A third tower came down on 9-11? I mean, this is and even for the jurors who, who are going to be most likely equally ignorant of this major fact. Uh, major for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, it came down on 9-11. Two, it wasn't hit by an airplane. Three, it came down the exact manner of a classic controlled demolition. And yet NIST, uh, whom this film will be about, as Christina says, a fight for truth uh, between NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was tasked, by the way, by Congress to explain these collapses to the American people. And us, who are trying to point out 
very basic, essential facts, like buildings don't do this, especially ones that are uh, not hit by airplanes, especially ones that are steel frame fireproofed skyscrapers. Guess how many steel frame fireproof skyscrapers have been destroyed by fire in the last hundred years? Not one. And yet there's been dozens and dozens and dozens of fires in these buildings. So we've, <clears throat> we've, we've got their attention right now, right? And, and, and so like, like Christina was Im implying here, uh, this is a new phenomenon in the destruction of buildings. We've had beams that have expanded, thermal expansion existed, but they've never brought down a, a, a skyscraper or any building, really. Um, so fires are said to have expanded these particular beams, long span beams. Yeah, and, and not just any fire, just office, basically office equipment fires, you know? Which I was thinking about that, and I thought that's and and not not on every floor, just on I don't know, like six or seven floors. Richard, is that correct? Yeah, they're scattered. They're small. Yeah. And oh, guys, can we can we hold it here because uh, we're we're getting into a break here. Uh, oh, okay. We'll oh, pick it yeah, up on the other side. Okay. You bet. And when we come back, we've got a lot to share about who people who heard for knew about this building's collapse before it even happened yep okay you're listening to the other side of midnight and uh we'll be back after this break Midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. other side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, $0.33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. $0.08 cents an episode, $0.02.5 cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. This is Kinthea standing in for Richard C. Hoagland, along with Keith Morgan. And we are speaking with a, a lawyer's committee for 911 inquiry. We were just speaking with Richard Gage about the mysterious building number seven and also all the uh, these tie-ins between the anthrax and the pandemic and the, all this information that has been hidden from the public and is now coming forward, thanks to the amazing work that this team is doing, headed up by Mick Harrison. So I'm going to turn this back to you, Richard, and uh, dazzle us. <laughs> you already dazzled me. Oh, my God. This, this evidence dazzles me uh, every time I talk about it. It, it blows me away. The no pun intended. The the the, uh, the the FEMA that that um, the organization that David Cole has been bulldogging for years, and that Mick has recently won um, uh, the opportunity to get discovery. One of the things that we're going to discover is that their report in May of 2002 included an Appendix C. Well, what was that? That was a metallurgical examination of the steel they recovered from Building 7. Oh my gosh, what did they find and produce in this? It's so important, they took up a whole appendix for it. Um, the steel was sulfidated a hot corrosion attack on the steel with liquid molten iron invading the grain boundaries of the steel. That's what they found, an attack on the steel with hot molten iron and sulfidation. What does that mean? That is the direct evidence of thermite incendiaries. It can be nothing else. It's such powerful evidence that what did NIST do with it when they took over the investigation in 2002? They threw it out. They didn't include it in their $20 million investigation uh, altogether for all three towers. Uh, that uh, Building 7 component of which was, was finally published in 2008. 
by the way, seven years after 9-11. So the, the, this is direct evidence of, of, uh, of taking the building down with thermite, and it was thrown out, covered up by NIST. This is extremely important. And they, uh, the, the, the author of this report, Jonathan Barnett, not the appendix, but the uh, actual report itself from FEMA, he said the ends of the steel beams were partly evaporated. Well, it takes 4,000 degrees temperature Fahrenheit to evaporate steel. Guess how hot fires are? Maybe 500 degrees, maybe 1,000 degrees. Uh, not 4,000 degrees and not 2,800 degrees either, uh, which is the temperature at which steel begins to melt. So we have a real problem with the official reports here, and the grand jury is going to see this. It is black and white, and we're going to be presenting it to them, and they're going to know this is a citizen grand well, these, these grand jurors are citizens, and, and so they have the power uh, to judge based on common sense, and they have no motivation, theoretically, to cover up what's really going on here. So that's what they're going to see in this film. So right now, even, you're getting a, 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 an inside scoop into what the grand jury is going to see, and when we turn them over to the Twin Towers, they're going to see that those towers started dropping suddenly and smoothly and nearly symmetrically at first, uh, straight down uh, in, in the first three seconds. There, there's no halting or hesitation or jolt when the top section meets and, and, and collides with the intact, cold, hard structure below. So what does that mean? Uh, it means that something must be removing that structure below. And that's where we have over 156 first responders uh, hearing sounds of explosions, most of them before the towers ever start collapsing. You see, NIST told us this is the sound of a building falling down. No, it's before the towers started falling down, and there's witnesses of explosions before the planes even hit the towers, which is extremely important uh, because uh, we have corroboration of that by the seismic evidence, which uh, proves that there are explosions deep underground picked up 20 miles away corroborating the first responders' testimony of explosions in the towers. So these seismic reports are by the Do uh, uh, the Earth Observatory, Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, 20 miles away, and Columbia University did the reports. And, and they, 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 it's very clear what's going on. Um, and that data has been fudged by NIST as well. So we'll go into that with the grand jury. But 
there is more evidence after the first three seconds of these towers coming down of four and eight ton structural steel sections ejected out of the towers laterally at 80 miles an hour out not down how does gravity work it it, it works down um this is ejecting these steel beams and and, and components uh 600 feet in every direction so that's absolutely extraordinary because that is direct evidence of high energy explosives uh in addition to the incendiaries uh that we also have proof of in the towers one component of which is before they come down that there's molten iron flowing out of the side of the south tower and it is by its temperature we can tell by its color we can tell its temperature uh it, it is exceeding 2800 degrees uh and it's it's white hot um that that's amazing but the buckets of the excavators are also picking up materials in the crab claw and, and they are dripping with molten iron by definition again that's exceeding 2800 degrees uh, so we have the evidence of molten iron not only from all this molten iron but it, it, from all previously molten iron in the form of these droplets which compose up to six percent of the world trade center uh dust uh by some samples uh, molten iron droplets they call them microspheres they're everywhere. It's not even World Trade Center dust unless it has these molten, previously molten iron microspheres. Well, where, where do they come from? They don't know. They don't tell us. They're just mystified. Well, what is the byproduct of thermite? Molten iron. And in an explosive environment like the center of the Twin Towers, that molten iron becomes aerosolized and when aerosolized liquids what do they do they turn into spheres just like out of a spray bottle so these fall and cool with all the dust and and that's the only way that molten iron microspheres could get there is because if they were uh, uh, part of, of a thermitic uh, response so this team of eight international scientists led by Niels Harrod in Copenhagen examined the dust because they, they've collected seven samples or the seven samples independently collected or given to them and they examine them and they do a very, very detailed scientific study, which is peer reviewed on a 24 page uh, paper in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal. What did they find in the dust? They thought it was paint chips, but they're not because they, uh, they, they, they're dual layered. So they know they were liquid applied, but interestingly, uh, they, at about 420 degrees Celsius, 758 Fahrenheit, they ignite producing a lot of energy. Paint doesn't do that. So, and, and they produce what else? 
molten iron microspheres with the same chemical signature as the molten iron microspheres found in all the World Trade Center dust by the U.S. Geological Survey and their particle atlas of 2005. I mean, it's, it's incredible. The, the evidence could not be more self-corroborating and repeatable on uh, an experimental basis. This evidence is all with us today. It's not gone. Uh, so uh, we know exactly uh, how, well, not exactly. We know this, this material was used because there's about four tons of it in all the World Trade Center dust, these red gray chips, and about four tons of uh, estimated by extrapolation of these previously molten iron microspheres. They can't explain how either got in all the World Trade Center dust samples, but it's only and it's only explainable by one uh, thing, and and that is incendiaries. And let me tell you. There's no other reason for incendiaries to be involved. And if you look at the beams, you have 45-degree cuts with thick molten iron slag coming off of these 45-degree cuts. I mean, it is so crystal clear what happened here uh, that this is going to be a cakewalk. If we can get the film made and get it in front of the jurors and have it submitted on a silver platter to the jurors, uh, they and, and the whole world are finally going to see the evidence that will back up the 9-11 family's calls for justice, particularly in the most excellent recently released film, Uns The Unspeakable, which was released uh, over at AE 9-11 Truth. And it uh, features uh, family members like uh, Bob McElvain and Drew De Palma uh, and Matt Campbell, uh, who who uh, who lost their family members because they were, uh, uh, well, it, it's very gruesome, uh, but they very small pieces, if any. Uh, of their bodies. In, in fact, there were 700 bone fragments found on top of a nearby skyscraper that were only a half an inch long. They're body fragments that were strewn uh, 800 feet from the towers in all directions, uh, small enough uh, to hardly be identifiable. And yet still, there's a thousand members, family members, there's a thousand victims who have no trace found whatsoever of their loved ones, meaning they were vaporized. And so this really gets to the heart of the problem here. How do we make any sense uh, out of that in, in a gravitational collapse, which we're told the towers were? Uh, it, it, it makes no sense. So uh, we have the evidence that will that the family members need uh, to pursue their uh, uh, calls for, for justice here. And we're fiercely going to be about making this film over the next uh, several months uh, and, and, and getting it out um, in bite-sized 
uh, segments. So this is why we've got to have um, uh, the public to make this film. I mean, if, if you want to see this evidence, and I've only presented it, you know, audio, uh, when you see the graphic that the, the graphics that the that the grand jurors are going to see, <clears throat> and that you can see on my website, richardgage911.org, <clears throat> dozens of, of high-quality presentations, uh, you'll understand. And you'll want to support the effort to make this film 9-11 crime scene to courtroom. And so I encourage you to, to support this film in, in as big a way as you can, as you, as you can, over at uh, LC for 911.org, LCFOR 911.org, and, and co produce the film. We're inviting you to make this film with us. And it's all explained over there. So be sure to see that uh, article on the LC website. <clears throat> this is very exciting, Richard. It really is. I, think so. I mean, if the public to have a chance to support your efforts and be co-producers. And, you know, that's you're bringing our voice to, you know, mm, it's very exciting. Uh, Richard? Hi. Yeah. Barb again. Um, I appreciate your commenting on this amazing film, um, The Unspeakable. Uh, that folks can watch by going to the Architects and Engineers website. That's ae911truth.org. And Richard Gage, of course, was the founder of Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth 15 or so years ago. Um, I'd appreciate you, Richard, just briefly um, uh, focusing in on towards the end of that film, The Unspeakable. Uh, there is a short uh, interview with probably the most famous coroner in the United States, Cyril Wecht, who was shown the evidence that you just uh, touched on uh, about what happened to so many of the bodies of the victims. And after all, we're doing this because of the family members of the victims of the explosions uh, by pre-placed explosives and incendiaries in the World Trade Center towers. Um, if you could just uh, refer to what Cyril Weck says at the end of the movie Unspeakable, because I think it's very important. Well, he was looking at a forensic report, a medical report that talked about the uh, small fragments of bone, bones from one person, and there were several of these one persons, that were split into extremely small fragments and embedded into the soft tissue of people around them. And the exact quote, Barb, you're going to have to help me. Uh, well, I won't remember the precise quote, but it was his conclusion that I found very, very critical. And at the, uh, at the end of looking at the evidence and making a comment about it in the film The Unspeakable on the Architects and Engineers, his website, Cyril Wecht says, words to the effect, that given this evidence that there must be a new investigation of 9-11 and that he has absolutely no idea that he is shocked that there hasn't been yet. There we go. Yeah. 
So this is extremely difficult information for people to accept. We understand that. But when you realize the big picture, the whole world, every American in the whole world knows now that the United States and our coalition partners were taken to war in Iraq on a lie, the lie of weapons of mass destruction. What they need to understand is that the United States and our coalition partners were taken into a war, the war in Afghanistan based upon the massive lie of who attacked us on 9-11. And the people who really did that, the real perpetrators, are extremely dangerous. They are armed with weapons of mass destruction, and they are at large. They are still out there. We have to prevail. We have to prevail. This isn't just our fight. It isn't just the fight of the 9-11 victims' family members and the lucky few survivors of those attacks. This is all of our fight. We really need your help, people. We need your help to go to the Lawyers Committee website and donate what you can. Some of you may only be able to donate a dollar. Others of you may be able to donate more. But we need all of your help. We need to prevail for all of our sakes. So thank you. Thank you for helping us. Thank you, Barbara, for making that point. Just underline it, highlight it, everyone. And uh, we're drawing to a close of the show. We've got like another five minutes or so. Any points you want to make sure to get out there before we close? Any of you? Maybe we should begin with Mick and then go to Richard and then Kintia and I can wrap up. Okay. I think we still have Christina, but um, so... I'll give you my uh, ever popular dog in the nighttime analogy <laughs> from the Sherlock Holmes episode, Silver Blaze. For those who haven't read it, uh, Sherlock was investigating the disappearance of a prize racehorse and went to the stable and noticed the dog and <clears throat> interviewed the people. And, and later he told his colleague, Dr. Watson, I want to draw your attention to the mysterious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And Watson said, well, the dog did nothing in the nighttime. And Sherlock said, well, that was the mysterious incident. And the point was something should have happened, but it didn't happen. And in that case, the dog didn't bark because the dog knew the perpetrator. And what we have here are watchdogs in federal agencies who are not barking. They're not barking about the demolition evidence and a lot of the issues we're talking about. And they should be. And that mm -hmm. raises the question of why not. Wrong point. Christina, what say you? Well, I just want to reiterate that this is the only organization that is looking, trying to look systematically at all the crimes from all the venues and bring them to the courtroom. And without, if you can't, if you don't bring it to the courtroom, you don't get accountability, you don't get justice. So just think about that and think about giving us your support so that we can do this job on a grander scale more quickly. And I just want to 
underline that our freedoms are in the balance here. It's justice and our freedoms. As Barbara said, those perpetrators are out there. They become more emboldened each time they do something, as Christina said. And we have to make a stand. We can't just be silent. And while we may not be able to go into the courtroom, we can certainly support our fabulous guests here tonight who are doing that, who on our behalf are fighting for our freedoms and for justice and for the justice of these families who have been torn apart by this terrible event. And it's a time where we're we're at the beginning of a new year here. And more than ever, each one of us has to reach deep within and acknowledge the truth that's there and stand up for it. There's, we can't be silent anymore. We can't be complacent anymore because, hey, folks, you're next on the agenda. If we don't stand up, we're next. And uh, for justice, for the sake of our children and these new generations who have been uneducated, deliberately hoodwinked, we need this information to go out. This film would do a lot into educating the young generation because they are our future. They are our future leaders. And they need to know the truth of what happened and they need to know what was lost on that tragic day and what we are fighting for and what can come back. And everybody can do something. Uh, it, it's just It can be as simple as on, on your own computer sending the link out to, to this interview to everybody uh, uh, who you imagine will be receptive to it. Uh, when you're, you can send uh, the evidence at um, uh, richardgage911.org to every architect and engineer in your community. Uh, you can do these things very easily. And so whatever you do, do something. That's the important thing. And we are at the bottom of the uh, runway. <laughs> so thank you for listening. This is The Other Side of Midnight, and many thanks to our wonderful, prestigious guest tonight. Thank you, Kinthea. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.